morning. Well, as you've probably figured out by now, my name is Austin. Uh, I have uh, been in school at Louisville, Kentucky, in Boyce College, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, for, uh, for just about, well, since 2018. Um, so I just have four classes left there, and then I'll be continuing on for the master's program there and pursuing whatever work the Lord has for me, which I've had various ideas of what that path has been for a long time. Uh, but he, uh, he ultimately is the one who will decide what I will do, as he's changed my mind over and over again, it seems. Um, so it is good to be back. And I knew I was going to be joyful seeing each of you, but there's never been a more appropriate term, or never a, been a more appropriate time to use the term overjoyed than right now. And seeing each of you has been a surreal experience. And I mean, I swear, as I was seeing you guys, I was having heart palpitations. Uh, so uh, believe me, I'm really, really excited to, to just get to fellowship with you guys for a short time while I'm here. Um, but uh, before I take us to our scripture this morning, I kind of want to cement a, a picture in your mind uh, of something that, uh, just something that will, that will help you to, to understand what I'm talking about. And to do that, I'm going to tell a story of, uh, of a fond memory of mine from when I was back here in Colorado. If any of you know Cody and Melissa Bybee, you know that they're crazy. Uh, but uh, they took me one time to a place in Alamosa called Bottomless, uh, which is a place where you go cliff jumping. Uh, so I don't know if any of you guys have been adventurous enough to, to, to jump off a cliff. Uh, but it, I, I, I hear that if your friends do that, you should do that too. Um, but Anyways, so we, we hike up into this place, and it, it, it surprises me. There's just this big hole in the middle of a mountain, and you look just deep down into this thing, and there's this royal blue water. It's beautiful. And they call it bottomless because apparently they've tried to swim to the bottom and have not been able to find it. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, assuming there's a bottom somewhere. But uh, the point is there's like a 15-foot drop, like a 25-foot, and there's like a 40-foot, and then if you just jump straight in from the from the ground level, there's a 50 or 55 foot. Um, so you can imagine there's a little bit of, a little bit of apprehension from, from doing that. Uh, so I started with the 15 foot, and you know, it's pretty easy. You just take a breath, jump in, it's fine. You go up to the 25 foot, same thing. You take a breath, you jump in, and it's fine. So as I get to the 40 foot, I'm thinking like, okay, I gotta, like, I gotta be a little more careful here. So I like take a big breath to jump in. And, I, and I, as I'm running, I take my, my breath right as I'm leaping. And so then you fall, and you're falling for an eternity, and then you, you land, and then you go deep into the water. Like, all that momentum forces you really far down in. And it takes a long time to get back up. And so the amount of time you're falling, the amount of time you're in the water, that one breath that you took, not really enough to last that long. Okay, so I realized that, and, and I was brave enough to go to the 55-foot drop, um, and, uh, and I thought I was going to take a breath as I was falling, but that's not what happened. I still, like, once I finally got up the gall to jump off this thing, I, like, took a breath at the last possible second, of course, and I leapt in, and I, and I was deep in that water once I finally got in. So I'm trying to swim back up to the surface as fast as I can, and I'm just not getting there. It, every time I feel like I should be at the surface by now, I'm not there. It's a long way up. And I started to feel this like terror inside and like a panic. Like I'm not gonna make it before I have to take that breath. And it was 
that, that was a lesson for me because I realized that, uh, well, for one, I didn't think this through from the start. Uh, <laughs> probably not my best decision ever. But I want you to kind of, I, I want you to kind of capture that, that kind of, that kind of, I'm not going to make it moment. Uh, and take that with you through the rest of this. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6, that is absolutely essential. I want you to be able to look down and see what I'm talking about as I go, because you will get lost if you don't. Uh, and as Greg taught me, you should never trust the words out of the preacher's mouth unless you can see them right in front of you. So that being said, I'll stop blabbing on and get to it. Um, so, we're just going to read verses 25 through 34. When you get there, can you say amen? All right. This is the word of our Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not this life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore... Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your word humbly. Father, I pray that each of us, as we look to your word, would not want to implant our own ideas or thoughts, but that we, we would um, humbly trust that what you have written is good enough and it is sufficient to carry us where you would like us to go. Father, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and concision of speech as I speak this morning, and I pray for those that are here. I pray that you would help them to listen well, understand well, and to be able to follow well. Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would carry us through this time. It's in your great and holy name I pray. Okay, so I have just a little bit of an outline I want to give you where I'm going today, and that is that one, there's a better way to go about repentance. Two, perspective matters in rightly ordered worship. And three, there's some practical things that you can do to that end. So I'm going to go back to the scripture. So verse 25 says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not this life more than food, and the body more than clothing? So, 
This is not Jesus saying that you don't, you don't got to be anxious. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, life isn't that bad. No. Because life can be that bad. A lot of you have experienced that in some ways that I can't imagine going through. Some of the, some of the things I'm, I'm aware of that you guys have gone through has, um, has impacted me greatly. And I know that it's impacting you a lot. So there's reason for anxiety in this world. There is. But um, this, uh, this is not just Jesus offering us the opportunity to not be anxious, but it is a rebuke and a command. He says, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about these simple things like clothing and food. Is your life not more than that? That you're caught up in those things. There's so much more going on here that we have to pay attention to. That if we get caught up in these little things, we're going to miss the big picture. So, I also want to point to 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, um, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful to provide you an escape so that you might be able to endure it. There's a lot of temptation, but God is faithful. And if your perspective is missing that, then you're going to miss this entire thing. So I want to back up a little bit and say that one of the things that causes Christians an immense amount of anxiety is actually the repentance from sin. Because we get so wadded up when we face our sin, and we don't know how to deal with it so much. We, we try so hard to get out of it, and we're, we're, we're spinning our wheels. And, and sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes we have these, these sins that are comfortable to us, and we don't want to let them go. We don't want to walk away from those things that we enjoy doing, even though we know that they're misrepresenting the character of God. And so this gets, this gets to be frustrating for us, and we start to, to, to just to be upset because we're, we're inwardly focused as we try to get away from our sin. But this passage is calling us to a greater awareness of our reality. So out of that, go back to verse 26. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? With this, I want to point out that we are more valuable than the birds because we are the crown of creation in mankind. He has created human beings in the image of God in his likeness. There's an express purpose for that. Being created in the image of God means that we are his representatives on the earth. When you look at human beings, you see God. And so the fundamental reality of sin is that it is doing anything that God does not do. So you're misrepresenting God, you're bearing false witness, and that is an offense to the king. And so if we are to return to being an image bearer, we must repent of sin. And so without being too overly simplified on that, um, look simply to the way Jesus describes it. The birds of the air are cared for. They don't, they, they don't do anything other than their created purpose. When they're working the way they've been designed to work, everything 
that they need is provided for them. They don't have to do all this extra nonsense to get what they need. But we seem to think that we have to do all sorts of stuff outside of our created order and our created purpose. But look at the birds. Are we not more valuable than they that when, when, when we do as we are created to do, we will be cared for by our Heavenly Father? So, in which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about why on earth Jesus Christ quoting, or is, is bringing up Solomon at this point. And if you think about the people that he's preaching to, they all would have been very, very aware of King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's preaching to the, the, um, the people of Israel who are well informed on the Old Testament. That's their whole life. Um, and so they would have known of, uh, of Ecclesiastes well. Um, and so why does, why, does, why does Jesus bring up Solomon? Well, in Ecclesiastes, we see this whole, this whole picture of, uh, of King Solomon arraying himself with all sorts of things, all sorts of fine clothing and uh, beautiful lush gardens and uh, as many relationships as he could be in uh, and anything that he could find that would fulfill him and bring him, uh, bring him peace and contentment. He was looking at everything of the world to bring himself contentment. And what he found is that everything is vain. Everything is vanity. There is no contentment in the under-the-sun perspective. And I want to say, people think Ecclesiastes is some sort of depressing book. And I want to say, stop it. Ecclesiastes is one of the most optimistic books in the Bible. Because if you think Ecclesiastes is a depressing book, then you're looking at it from the under-the-sun perspective. He mentions an under-the-sun perspective, assuming that there is an above-the-sun perspective. We cannot get stuck looking at the worldly things and the lack thereof and the things that bring us such pain and misery and, and discontentment in life. If we're looking for those, to those things to find that contentment, all we're going to do is spin our wheels and eventually run out and run dry. And we're going to find ourselves in some sort of anxious, depressive mess. And if you look around in our culture today, you will see an anxious, depressive mess is because we're constantly seeking our fulfillment in just material. This is just gonna, this one day is gonna be burned and recycled or just thrown somewhere. It's, it's a great pulpit, I'm sorry, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's been there for a long time, it is enduring, it's great. But the point is, this is just matter, this is, this is nothing to us in an eternal perspective. So. Jesus Christ, speaking to a people who is well informed of Solomon's life, he was one of their kings, surely would have, they would have known the history, is calling them to the attention of the whole point of, of the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes. And so, what is Jesus' point here? Go then to the 30th verse. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not 
much more clothe you, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We'll stop there for a second. When he says the Gentiles seek after these things, at this time who he's speaking to, he's saying essentially those who do not know God seek after these things. And that would have come across as a huge rebuke to them. He's saying that you are behaving like those who do not know God when you are pursuing the things of the world to find your contentment. Oh, you of little faith, you are turning away from God to find what you need in this life. Turn back to God to find what you need. Have faith in him. Anxiety is the antithesis of faith and trust in the Lord. And anxiety is something that misrepresents God. Remember I said sin is anything that God is not. So you can see God, who is all-sufficient, the all-sustaining creator and, and, and power of the universe, is, is this a being who is anxious? And so when we are anxious... What does that say to those who look to us to find Christ? And so, I want to, uh, I want to look a little bit more into, um, into the power of repentance. So, we tend to think of repentance as something of a, something of a chore and something that we have to get through as part of the Christian life. It's, it's sort of a, it's on the back burner in our culture. It's on the back burner in the church in a lot of ways. But here's the thing. If you're not repenting of sin, this is leading you into, uh, into a deeper anxiety than, than I can describe. And the, the reason I really want to bring that up is because repentance is worship. There is nothing quite as hard as repenting from sin. Jesus Christ calls us to, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? And so what is more worshipful than to do what is hardest out of love for the one who sustains you? Okay? And so, again, how do we do that? How do we get away from this, this faithless running from God? He says in the 33rd verse, and I think this is one of the most important verses in Scripture as a prescription for Christians. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, seek. What does it mean to seek? It means to diligently pursue, to run after it. And then what does it mean to seek first? not like an order like let's say if you lose your car keys and you need to get to work you're gonna seek your car keys diligently and and fervently trying to find them so that you can get to your goal but he's not saying seek first in that way like you don't just seek your car keys first so that then you can go to work he's saying first as in first in importance you seek above everything else the kingdom of God and his righteousness so you seek to emulate the righteousness of God above all else. And all those other things that you're anxious about 
will be added unto you. If you are pursuing repentance, I think this is honestly the key to actually finding repentance. You know, people tell me all the time, I would love to repent. I just, I try and I try and I try and I try. And then I never get anywhere. And I'm always right back where I started, stuck in the middle of my sin. As if I haven't been a Christian all this time. As if I'm just, just stuck the way I was. It, they're describing enslavement to sin. And, and I realized that what they're describing is they're seeking the cure and the answer to their sin in worldly perspective. They're not seeking the kingdom of God first. They're not repenting of sin out of love for God. They're repenting from sin out of a, a desire to repent from sin. If you're seeking first your sin and to get rid of it, you're not going to find success. But if you sit, set your eyes on Christ and you set your love on him and your affections on him, then you will find that repentance because it will be an outpouring of the love that you have for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, here I want to change, uh, I I change gears a little bit and help us to understand what Jesus' answers are for this. What is the, he doesn't just say this and leave us out in the, in, in the cold so that we have to figure it out on our own. He gives us a roadmap on, on how to practically put this into practice. He just does it before he says it. So if you go back to the beginning of the sixth chapter, he says in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is he bringing this up for? We, for one, there's a, there's a desire to give to the needy. And two, there's a desire to do it in secret. So there's, a, there's sort of a, a need for approval in giving to the needy in front of everyone. And then there's, there's a desire to hang on to your assets in, um, in not giving to the needy. Right? So Jesus is bringing them to a point where they are letting go of their worldly contentment in their assets. In order to do that, and to do that without gaining some sort of reward from people or from the world, you do it in secret. You have to, you have to be, you have to have contentment outside of those things in order to do that. And so in doing that, in prescribing that, Jesus is prescribing you to chip a little bit away from your worldly contentment. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. And halfway through, in the 11th verse, he says, give us this day our daily bread. A big point of the Lord's Prayer is simply us standing before the Lord, realizing that we depend on him for everything that we are. Our entire being depends on him. And everything that we need to survive comes from him. So we ask him for our daily bread. So he's calling us to a point of, uh, of dependence and not on, not, on, not on the bread, but on the God who gives it. And then there's a section on fasting, which is very interesting. Because we don't, we don't really talk about fasting very much, do we? Uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Greg's preached a few sermons on fasting. Uh, I don't know. But I, from my perception, it seems like fasting is widely neglected. But when you think about this, from what Jesus is kind of setting up here, 
geez, golly, what, what purpose would, would, would depriving ourselves of some worldly com comforts have in leading us to seek first the kingdom of God? I mean, I can't imagine why the discipline of, uh, of, of being able to be independent from food and drink and, and, and all these things that I, that I cling to, I can't imagine why that would be helpful for my spiritual development. In that discipline, we're learning to depend on Christ. We're pulling ourselves closer to him by learning to let go of the world and push that behind us. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim when we practice these types of spiritual disciplines and spending time in the sword of truth, spending time in prayer. The kingdom of God <clears throat> is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So seeking first the kingdom of God means in part filling your heart with the Holy Spirit. And the way to do that is by spending time in the scriptures. So not be anxious, but seek the kingdom of God. And then he also points out in verse 19, do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's, he's clearly calling us to a, to, to a desire in all of the things he's prescribing us to live by to put away our worldly comforts, to not store up worldly treasure as if that's everything to us. And then he concludes that sort of section in verse 24 by saying, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you are torn between the under-the-sun perspective and the above-the-sun perspective on a day-to-day -day basis, I can't, I can't really see any, per, any result of that other than anxiety. But if you continually give yourself to seeking the kingdom of God, and putting away your worldly comforts, then you come to know the God who came to save you. So then I want to go, lastly, to verse 34. So this is one that uh, tends to be neglected also, especially among the prosperity gospel folks. People want to say, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything you need will be added unto you, and then it will be great, and then you won't be anxious anymore. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. At no point in this passage does Jesus Christ promise you an anxiety-free tomorrow. He does not promise you a day without trouble tomorrow. He shows you a path to be sustained in that trouble. He shows you how to be upheld in that trouble. There's some very real pain. There's a lot that's going to happen in your life tomorrow. But today is not the day to worry about it. Today is the day to seek first the kingdom of God. And tomorrow, that will be enough. Tomorrow, that will be enough. So... In this, what is our example 
We look to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. He is the consummation of our inheritance. He points us in his life on earth to the right living, to the right dependence on God. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. I'm not saying you should move out of your house and go find a rock to lay on. But when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, I can't, I, I mean, that, that is a picture of a kind of anxiety, I think, that we, we don't understand. He was sweating drops of blood before his, before his sacrifice on the cross. He was pleading with the Father. But he sought above his own life, above his dear intimate relationship, above everything that means everything to him on the earth as he's come to know it. He sought first the kingdom of God in giving up his own life for the sake of the kingdom to be spread to us through his righteousness. So do we emulate that? As we're being sanctified, are we, are we looking to the, to the faith that Jesus Christ had to uphold us? Even when we have extremely hard decisions in front of us, or even when it's simple anxiety about someone that you're trouble that you're having trouble reconciling with, you know you, you have you have a little bit of anxiety over this. But think about the amount of anxiety that that Christ must have have faced, but then been able to push through to take the most abuse any of us can even imagine. I mean, when we're dealing with conflict with one another, we we don't. It's not like we're being tortured by them, and yet we don't, we don't go as far as Christ did. We don't even come close. We're not willing to, because our comfort is so important to us. But the sustaining power of Christ is more than that. We always seem to end up looking back to ourselves to find the end. It's, it's, it's in our repentance, and it's in our effort, and, and then you end up in a works righteousness where you're, you're working to earn your salvation. You're earning your position before God by seeking these steps and, do, and, and following this recipe. But that's not enough. That will, that will lead you to depending on yourself and not on Christ. That's leading you to the very thing that, that I'm preaching against here. It's, it's leaning on yourself, which is part of the world. You've got to lean away from yourself and seek first the kingdom of God. Change your perspective to loving God and seeking that kingdom first. And then you'll find your repentance. Uh, and then you'll be freed from the lack of contentment that we find in the matter of this world. So this is the point I have to make today. That we must seek First, so how do you how do you pursue that really in your in your context? Is it giving to is it giving to the needy? I know you guys have done that very well in this church over the years. I know that this church is one that has uh, a reputation that goes before them in other states of being willing to give to the needy. I've been a benefactor of that very much. But it's not just in, in those steps. Those steps are very helpful to lead you, again, only to lead you to the one 
who's able to fulfill completely what we need. So, if you will pray with me, I hope that we will be able to seek first the kingdom as we go, and, uh, and we will depend on him. Our Heavenly Father, you are great, you are kind, you are wonderful. I cannot imagine seeking again those things which lead only to death. But in seeking you, we are freed from slavery, from the slavery of sin, which binds us and has no fruit other than death. But in seeking you, we have been given sanctification, which leads to its fruit, eternal life. You are so kind to give us that, to be faithful, to provide for us, even though we know we don't deserve it. Thank you, and I praise you. It's in your wonderful name I pray. Amen. We're going to have our time of invitation, and as we do every week, thanks, Austin. This is a good message. Here, here's what I got. You ready? Okay. Repentance is not as much about trying to get rid of your sin as it is turning back to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where that's part of that. There's a lot of that. Good job, buddy. Um, our time of invitation, I invite you to Sam. We will sing as we do weekly, and this time a chance to respond. Thank you, Austin, for, for your faithfulness here to the to the word of the Lord, and um, let's worship as we uh, as we continue to go. The altar is open if you want to respond.